0: So now, listen and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time?
1: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is
2: Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we'll take a look at a topic near and dear to our hearts, rock criticism. We'll talk to author Jonathan Lethem to make the case for rock journalism as great American writing. Along the way, we'll discuss the work of some of the very best critics in our field. Plus, we'll review new music from Bjork and Mavis Staples. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll review new records from two incredible women artists, Mavis Staples and Bjork. But first, we're going to talk about the art of rock criticism. We'll start with the history, and then we'll focus in on my hero, Lester Bangs of course, uh, Jim, we know that criticism's been
1: around uh, for, for centuries in many cases. Art criticism, literary criticism, theater
2: criticism, for example. But rock criticism is a much newer discipline. It absolutely is, Greg. It really didn't come into its own until the mid-60s. Uh, not unlike rock music itself, it's taken a while for it to be taken as serious work, as high culture opposed to strictly pop culture, if you will. That's why when a new anthology was released called Shake It Up, Great American Writing on Rock and Pop, From Elvis to Jay-Z, the Great American Writing part of it caught our attention.
1: Jonathan Lethem is an award-winning novelist and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and he edited Shake It Up along with Kevin Detmar. Now, recently we spoke with Jonathan about why he chose to work on Shake It Up and asked whether the rock criticism included in his book really stood up as serious literature.
3: I'll just say for myself... I grew up energized by brilliant, critical writing, much of it of the generation of writers that are collected here, whether or not, you know, that's to say my contemporaries or my immediate elders. Now I'm not even talking exclusively about rock writing. I'm also talking about, you know, reading Anatole Broyard, uh, eviscerate someone in the New York Times book review, and sort of having my breath taken away, because Mm -hmm. it was so informative. It implied a whole world of intense human taking culture more seriously than, uh, you know, than life itself. And that's what I think was the standard that, you know, Kevin and I applied to this book is it should convey a powerful sense of something mattering to someone or what it's like for me as a 15-year-old, you know, wannabe writer to pick up one of those Pauline Kael anthologies and, and read her you know, talking about why, why a Brian De Palma movie from 1972 that I have no chance of seeing, because, it's not, you know, the condition of fandom for a long time was that you could read about things before you could ever hear them or see them. Right. I mean, right. there are songs that I learned about because Lester Bangs or Robert Christgau raved about them that I had to search in record bins for five years to find out whether they, you know, <laughs> whether right. their words right. could be matched by the power of the music itself. And sometimes the answer was yes, and sometimes no. Sure, But that sense of stakes, that they're discovering something, and trying to prove something, and trying to understand something. The best nonfiction writing, the best essays, are always about the writer themselves trying to test what they feel in words. Mm. To make it matter to themselves first, and then to persuade someone else.
1: You uh, cover a lot of ground in the book, Jonathan, uh, 50 years of writing. Uh, it's obviously impossible to cover that comprehensively, so you have to sort of pick and choose. But the evolution of this form, I think, is is what's interesting to me in the way you've, you've covered it here, you know, uh, picking spots. Um, initially, I think that the case even had to be made that this stuff was worth covering. And uh, the early writers in the book are basically asserting that this stuff is important. It, you know, it's important to me. And maybe it'll be important to you as well. Obviously, it's evolved since then. Uh, but was there a sense of creating that sort of arc where now it's almost taken for granted that, of course, you write about you know popular music and popular culture in a way that's you know serious and you know relatively high-minded, but at the same time, self-deprecating, humorous—all the great things that you expect from great writing.
3: It's really fascinating when you talk first about that uh, kind of defiance, that to, to claim this ephemeral music as a topic for a you know an, a serious essay or a serious piece of criticism in a way there's an underlying like manifesto and the energy of that defiance hey this is worth talking about i'm not wasting my time here
0: and the colors of the sea find your eyes with joy.
3: You can see it suddenly become fashionable and legitimate in a heartbeat. At the end of the 60s, and beginning of the 70s, Rolling Stone was a success. And, you know, places like New York Magazine and The New Yorker and, you know, uh, various newspapers were suddenly hiring regular reviewers or columnists. And so there's this uh, giddy period when it becomes a, a franchise, at least of journalism, if not of, you know, American letters <laughs> quite yet, claiming rock writing for the new journalism which it was very simpatico with, in a way. Um, And then, of course, it also suffers some of the indignities that journalism has suffered in the last decade or so. You know, there's a lot of appetite for long-form writing about culture that um, the Internet simply can't satisfy. But you have new avenues, things like the 33 and the 3rd series, Mm -hmm. that um, have kind of jumped into that breach
2: Well, as far as journalism uh, or music journalism as a career goes, it's astounding to know that Lester and Dave Marsh and Richard Meltzer and Jan Uhelski were struggling to write uh, uh, $15 record reviews in 1971, and that's that's about the going rate still today, right, (laughs) Greg? It has been. There was a golden period there where it was a little
1: higher, but, yeah, it seems to have come back to that. I mean, Jonathan, what's your take on the fact that – Everybody's a critic these days, and, and can be, and, and there's a lot of writing out there.
3: Well, you know, I mean, the first thing to say is it's really easy at any present moment to be exasperated with the abundance of mediocrity, right? And that sort of transcends all writing fields and all mediums, and it certainly predates the Internet. There's usually a lot of guff out there to, to wade through in search of the gems, and that was true in different ways at different in different eras and different mediums, there. But then again, there's this there's this present trend of the kind of home reviewer, you know, three three and a half stars, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, and and out. Suddenly, water cooler talk is substituting for contextualized, thoughtful. Uh, I guess I have to use the word kind of professional critical thinking in a lot of places because it's it's awfully awfully easy to open up a. Um, you know, a platform, and say, uh, you know, everybody, everybody, give this a a Rotten Tomato or a you know a hot chili pepper, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and we'll know what we think. That'll substitute.
1: You know, it's a great point, uh, Jonathan, about um, I, I think the role that critics used to play. It's, it's obviously changed. You know, Jim, you and I uh, are all kind of people who are raised by critics in a way. And in terms of, wow, this is a great record. I never never heard it, but I've got to find it now because I read this amazing review. Of you know, Gang of Four entertainment or something like that, or the Public Image Limited uh, metal box. <laughs> yeah, I remember trying to find a Noi record for for two or three years. Finally found it. I thought I'd found the Holy Grail, based on some what somebody had written about it. And now um, somebody
2: just it, on their iPhone just downloaded Noi as soon as you said that.
1: Well, it, it, exactly the
2: point. I mean, it,
1: it it has changed. The dynamic has changed. The critic's voice no longer is the one saying you got to go get this. I mean, maybe in some cases it is, but in many cases the listener can find it for themselves even before a critic can weigh in on it.
3: You know, for me, the Holy Grail was the Hackamore brick record. <laughs> uh, it was included in um, in in the you know, in the back of Stranded, he, he has a an early attempt at a kind of canon of, of, of rock and pop, yeah. And he includes Hackamore Brick, and it sounded like a fiction to me. Yeah. How could there be such a record? <laughs> Jethro
2: Tull was better than Hackamore. <laughs> Greel has no sense of humor.
3: So I took it took me fifteen years or twenty years to hear that record. You know. But you know, just as someone uh, is is now running to the internet for Noia or or for Hackamore Brick, um, the difference is the the interval. And what happens in that interval is, is an imaginative world is created. I mean, this is where it does, in a way, remind me of what I do, which is create fiction. You know, building palaces in other people's brains. Hmm. Greel had that privilege of building a palace of, you know, projected uh, music in, in, in his reader's brain when he writes Mystery Train or, or, or that index at the back of Stranded. Believe me, by the time I got that Hackenmore brick record home, I listened to it closely. Yeah, I didn't just hear you know thirty seconds on YouTube. I was, I was, I was all in. A silver
0: girl, a shining lady, who's smiling and laughing.
1: The book also, I mean, I think you you made an admirable attempt to try to be uh, inclusive, um, you know, represent a variety of voices in the book, not just the boys club, kind of the, the core of the early days of, of music criticism. You know, obviously uh, women have have become have emerged as as a great voice in that conversation. We see more African American writers writing about it. Um what voices aren't we hearing from yet and need to be heard in this conversation that you came across in your research?
3: Well, I mean, of course, it's desperately, it's desperately disproportionate. And we did everything we could to, you know, both apologize, explain and correct for it, you know, any, anyhow we could. But um, it's just, it's, you know, it's congenital to the, to the field as it is to, to other parts of the culture. And, um, you know, I was really grateful for that uh, Sander piece. Ellen Sander, you know, this name that was new to me when uh, she came into our viewfinder, you know, writes this extraordinary piece about uh, spending time in the orbit of Led Zeppelin at at their dynamic and egregious peak.
4: The rock business is volatile, rapid, and dangerous. There's no backing out of a concert contract signed. If a musician gets sick, they shoot him up like a racehorse and send him on. If he gets crazy, they slap him into line long enough to finish the tour before they dump him. For alien dopers, a bust is legal ostracism. Deportation. Locked out of the money pile in America for a rock group aiming determinedly for the top. Exhaustion, anxiety, release, sex, drugs traveling, and trying against incredible odds with their bare hearts and whatever managerial leverage they could muster.
3: And then she basically just lets you know she was harassed, you know, to, to within an inch of her uh, tolerance. And, and uh, she wouldn't, you know, she sort of says, uh, I would prefer not to. Like, I, that's probably the last time I'll put myself in that situation. Yeah. So she really lets you know what the condition for a, you know, potential... Uh, working journalist, a female working journalist in that field, uh, you know, what it was like at the time. And, uh, you know, you can just imagine that for her willingness to tell us, there's probably a hundred stories that people, uh, you know, quietly, quietly covered up out of their own sense of awkwardness or, or, you know, indignity. Yeah. Uh, The Boys Club isn't only that, you know, writers were hiring, male writers were hiring other male writers or You know, um, credentializing one another, but that the musicians themselves probably didn't take women seriously. It might not have been quite as bad as a, you know, baseball locker room, but it might have been close. So these things are, you know, God help us, they're slow to repair uh, everywhere. The process, and it was a slow one, it was five years, was of humbling ourselves and reading an inordinate amount of stuff that we hadn't read before. So we were learning and discovering and having our presumptions overturned constantly, uh, which was delightful. I hope the book, you know, conveys some of the air of the, the feeling of discovery uh, that, that carried us through those five years.
1: And then there's uh, Robert Criscow, who is the uh, self-appointed dean of rock critics, had decades of work at the Village Voice. How do you how do you approach including multiple pieces of his in the book?
3: I'll tell you, uh, it was a distinct pleasure to figure out how to represent Chris Gow in the book. Mm. Uh, you know, and I realized that I, among my favorite books, it's perverse, but among my favorite books in the canon of things that made it into hardcovers, or at
2: least trade paperbacks,
3: are the collections of uh, Chris Gow's micro-reviews. You know, his cons- yeah. yeah, the consumer, consumer guide. guide. And it, so it, I, it,
2: the rare writer in, in literary history who is better at 250 words than uh, 20,000. Absolutely, that's his
3: form. And uh, he's like a you know, I mean, I guess there are, there are uh, maybe some examples in Chinese poetry or something, right, of <laughs> yeah. sense for Chris Gow. So we just took his micro-reviews of Prince and ran them all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was wonderful because, of course, he, he, being the kind of uh, gourmand, uh, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce that word, but he likes everything, right, or he's interested in everything. Um, he, he'd reviewed Prince in 1979. Right, Uh, and you know, and then he continued all the way through those '90s records that a lot of people stopped paying attention to. He 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 listened to them track by track and figured out whether there was something going on or not. Mm -hmm. So it was a brilliant window into like the way an obsessive works.
4: Prince and the New Power Generation, file under Prince, Paisley Park, 1992. Designed to prove his utter
1: inexhaustibility in the wake of Diamonds and Pearls, by some stroke of commerce, his best-selling album since Purple
4: Rain. This absurdly designated rock soap opera, is he serious? Is he ever? Is he ever not? Proves mainly that he's got the funk. I confess I'm too square to
1: regale the guests at my all-ages dance party with Sexy MF, a title extended to six syllables in its recorded version. But My Name is Prince clears up a question posed by the title, a rune available on floppy disk to any publication willing to take his guff.
4: And Blue Light, a ballad that's got the reggae, is a sexy m**** a
0: minus minus.
3: and you know i think chris gow is an emblem for a lot of his readers and peers of the unembarrassed obsessive someone who will just keep listening
2: jonathan thanks for coming on the show
3: hey it was great to talk
2: That was Jonathan Lethem, one of the best novelists in America today, and he co-edited Shake It Up along with Kevin Detmar. After a short break, we're going to focus on one rock critic in particular, probably the most lauded ever, certainly the critic that made me who I am today, Lester Bangs, in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim Dirigatis, and we've been talking about rock critics. Now, now, some people think of rock critics as frustrated rockers, which in some cases may be very true. But one rock critic in particular seemed to be as much of a rock star as a critic, and we're talking about Lester Bangs.
2: Greg, we're actually being goaded into doing this by our producers. They said, <laughs> you know, it's about time you explained who this critic is, who has been such a huge influence now on 40 years of this pursuit of ours. Uh, Lester Bangs wrote for Rolling Stone, uh, more famously Cream Magazine, at the end of his life, The Village Voice, among many other publications. And no critic's work has had more of an impact on my career than his. And I I would dare say on every rock critic who has followed uh, in his path, whether you loved him or hated him. And there are people on both sides.
1: Jim, you wrote the definitive biography of Lester. The only one. Yeah. Let it blurt, which, uh, you know, explains a lot about where he came from and where he went with his writing. Uh, What was it about Lester, uh, his early career, his writing, his impetus for writing that made him different from other critics?
2: Uh, You know, let let, let me read uh, a sentence or two from Let It Blurt, which came out in 2000. And six months after its publication, Cameron Crowe did an autobiographical film about his days as a young rock critic uh, that starred Philip Seymour Hoffman, the, uh, you know, the, the actor of his generation portraying Lester Banks. When my book came out, I said Lester was the great gonzo journalist, gutter poet, and romantic visionary of rock writing. Hunter S. Thompson, Charles Bukowski, and Jack Kerouac rolled up into one. Out of tune with the peace and love ethos of the 60s and the me-generation navel-gazing of the 70s, he agitated for sounds that were harsher, louder, more electric, and more alive. Charting, though not necessarily defining the aesthetics of heavy metal and punk. Heavy metal through the 70s, punk rock as it exploded uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, saying in the midst of the 60s that, yeah, the Beatles are fine, okay, but it's these garage bands, the bands that would come to be celebrated on Nuggets, right? Bands like The Count Five, uh, whose psychotic reactions and carburetor dung uh, is referenced in the title to his posthumous anthology. We're talking about a guy, uh, Greg, who was born in pretty much the middle of nowhere, outside of San Diego, rural California... Escondido in 1948. He's best known, though, for moving to the suburb of San Diego, El Cajon, which really was just a dusty couple of gas stations at a drugstore when Lester was growing up. An incredibly weird upbringing. His mother was a devout Jehovah's Witness. His father was a reclamation project, a no-good alcoholic mm. she tried to save. It didn't work. He fell asleep drunk with a cigarette and burned to death in a fire. The Jehovah's Witnesses at this point did not mourn the dead. And Lester's mother was like, well, he is now has a chance to be one of the hundred and forty four thousand accepted into heaven or not, mm. we won't cry for your father, Leslie. He was born Leslie Conway Bangs. Nobody quite knows where the Lester came in, but Lester is how he was known. Um, Greg, you're a parent, I'm a parent, right? What happens when you have a kid who is denied Any candy in their life ever, any (laughs) sugar, right? The first time they go out on Halloween and go trick-or-treating, they go crazy! This is the story of Lester's life. He first fell in love with bebop jazz, uh, serious jazz, Ornette Coleman, uh, Coltrane, his ultimate hero, Charles Mingus. (laughs) ¶¶ Has like a 12 year old, he's reading Scrooge McDuck comics and listening to these jazz records, which his mother says are a window to Satan. And she will consistently seize his comics, his young writings, and his records and burn them. Wow, throw them in the fire! I think his love, his passionate obsession with rock and roll came from that denial and came from its vision as a life force that represented the true alternative to everything that he was denied. You know, the Velvet Underground were his all-time favorite band, but in Rock and Roll, the song The Velvets Sing of a girl named Jamie, who turns on the radio station, and her life is saved by rock and roll.
5: Every time she puts on the radio there was nothing going down at all. Not at all. Then one fine morning she puts on a New York station, you know she don't
2: Lester believed
1: that he uh, he had a tremendous influence on a lot of writers and, uh, and as well as readers, uh, influencing their habits, their taste in art. Uh, obviously, he had a huge influence on you. What what specifically do you think?
2: Uh, you got from Lester in terms of how you conducted your own career as a music critic. You know, Greg, in Jersey City, when I grew up pre-gentrification, you you like had three choices for the future. You were going to become a sanitation engineer, a garbage man, or a police officer, or uh, maybe an accountant in the suburbs. Um, I was a 17-year-old high school senior (laughs) at Catholic school in Jersey City taking a journalism class, annoying my teacher who said, go interview a hero in your chosen field. And I picked Lester Bangs. I spent a day that changed my life with him when I was 17, April 14th, 1982, and on April 30th, he was dead at the age of 33. I think um, the reason I'm a rock critic is because I'm asking these questions. I'm this clueless fat kid from Jersey City interviewing my hero, you know. And and uh, I, I, you know, let's listen to me and how mm. clueless I am first before I finish this story. Here I am, you know. I, I like I'm interviewing the rock critic hero. Right? I've mm. read every word he's ever. Like, what is good rock and roll, Lester? Mm-hmm. And he really thought about it before he answered.
4: Just for posterity, can I have your definition of uh, good rock and roll?
2: Good rock and roll. I don't know. It's just
4: something
1: that makes you feel alive, you know. It's, it's it's like it's something that's human, you know. And I think that most music today isn't anything that I would want to listen to. Would be made by human beings, you know, instead of computers and machines.
2: I I think that answer good rock and roll is something that makes you feel alive gets at the core of the two approaches to criticism, not only of rock and roll, but of any art forms. And I had this conversation many times with my other great hero, Roger Ebert. It's this concept of authenticity, okay? Is this just showbiz? Is this mere entertainment? Or is the artist sharing part of her soul? And can we hear that as a critic? You know, Lester is saying this is not just entertainment. This is a way of living your life. Certainly, you know, I walked out of that apartment on 6th Avenue and 14th Street in New York believing that. Mm. And and I set out to write about rock and roll for a living and maybe try to do what he did, not to be him. Uh, his, his writing was incredibly distinctive. He came from the beats. His ultimate hero was Kerouac. And if Kerouac and Ginsberg and Burroughs Wrote with the energy of the best bebop, Coltrane, right? You can hear it in the prose, especially when you listen to them read. Um, you, you hear the rhythms of the jazz. Lester turned it up. He's writing like the Stooges play. Mm. He's writing like those garage bands he loves and eventually the Ramones. There's actually a brilliant play, Greg, called How to Be a Rock Critic based on the writings of Lester Bangs. Uh, it did a month at the prestigious Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago in July. It had premiered about two years ago on the West Coast. And now it's doing a, the entire month of January at the Public Theater in New York. <laughs> I mean, talk about a classy institution. Lester, I, I can only imagine what Lester would imagine. A man who died as a pauper who couldn't eat anything but uh, spinach souffles, s- mm-hmm. frozen Stouffer's souffles, and couldn't pay his phone bill. And now he's the subject of this play. Um Eric Jensen is the actor who portrays Lester. He wrote the play with his wife, the director, Jessica Blank. There's no recording of Lester reading Lester that we can appreciate the way we hear Burroughs or Kerouac when they read their work. Listen to Eric channeling Lester, and you'll understand what I mean about these words becoming music. I like to
5: say that I outgrew Crane. Yeah. But (laughs) the truth is I wrote some of my best while I was there. The thing is, by the mid-70s, Green was starting to lose its luster for Lester. It's a classic story. Some guy sees a bunch of kids doing something innocent and good and ridiculous and pure. He waltzes in to make some money. We got a publisher. He started acting like my father, blah, blah, blah. The thrill was gone. I was just also starting to think that maybe this whole rock critic thing was depersonalizing me somehow all this time spent circling musicians like a vulture hovering on the outskirts of their lives hoping to taste some morsel of their greatness all the while avoiding the terminally disgusting international institution of rock and roll as superstar factory it was obvious that most of the fun had gone out of the major industry rock scene It was time for a change and it came man <laughs> like a lightning storm in came.
2: That's a little bit of Eric Jensen as Lester Bangs in the play that he wrote with his brilliant wife, Jessica Blank, How to Be a Rock Critic, based on the writings of Lester Bangs.
1: Now, Lester Bangs had a very distinctive style, uh, Jim, no doubt about that. Uh, I think where he gets criticism from a lot of his peers, I think obviously there's jealousy involved in any profession. I think uh, Lester was the, the biggest critic of his generation in many ways, um, and therefore the one who attracted the most criticism uh, from a lot of his peers. Well, well uh, you know what it is. Because he was self-indulgent. He he, 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 he inserted himself in almost every piece of writing he he uh, did. He was a fan of the first person uh, and the 500-word sentence. The, the, fa- the fact was, though, that he, he also had a brilliant uh, life to write about. I mean, he wrote it about, about it in such an interesting way. I think what I hear some people saying now is that he influenced an entire generation or several generations of writers who yeah. thought that they were interesting too?
2: Yeah, and I'm well, going to
1: write criticism through you know the prism yeah. of my personal experience. But that's
2: like blaming Led Zeppelin for giving us Kingdom Come. You know what right. I mean? No, I, 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 yeah. it, 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 there's been indulgence committed in his name. I get half a dozen emails every month from people who who close with signature lines from his writing, who quote his writing from some record review of a band. Nobody remembers, but they remember his writing. Um, you know, my, I have a friend who got her Ph.D. in Lester Banks studies at the Sorbonne in mm-hmm. Paris. She happens to be the sister of Jenny Beth and Savages. OK, um, he meant more. I think, to the readers than any other rock critic in history. Now, this has offended some of the self-appointed intellectual heads of rock criticism, most notably Robert Christgau, who was his editor at the Village Voice, and Greil Marcus, who edited the posthumous anthology uh, Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung. They're, they've always said, look, Lester was an entertaining writer, but he did not have deep ideas. And I think what they're jealous of is that reaction by uh, not only readers, but musicians. Let's not forget, Bob Seeger wrote a song called Lester New. The <laughs> Ramones give him a shout-out in It's Not My Place in the 9-to-5 World.
0: And
2: it's the end of the world, and I know it. Yeah. You know, uh, Stipe and, and, and Buck tell the story of, of being at a party where Lester Bags was throwing birthday cake. The only thing to eat was birthday cake and jelly beans. That's where that line comes from. (laughs) He connected with people emotionally. And I will defend him as a great thinker. Some of his most tossed-off lines... Um, Fashion is fascism. Style is originality. I mean, that's a toss-off. And that think about that. An entire dissertation could be written about that. Mm-hmm. He was a champion uh, of... What would become third wave feminism in Blondie, which is just a fan book, the only book published in his lifetime under his name alone, uh, that was just like a love letter to Blondie. He goes into this long consideration of women using their sexuality as a tool to sell their art. And he's way ahead of his time. He's up there with Jessica Valente 25 years before. his notions of uh, the, the fact that, that we can follow the three chords, more or less, of rock and roll from La Bamba to Louie Louie to No Fun by the Stooges to the Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. There, three chords, each played more rawly every time and with more attitude, and that's all you need. Um, You know, bigger ideas about the moral core of art, that this is something that will change your life. As I said, your life can be saved by rock and roll, and therefore it has a responsibility. And to tear people down or to indulge in homophobia, racism, sexism, um, you're betraying the very core of what's great about this art – I was writing those R. Kelly stories for BuzzFeed in July as I was attending the How to Be a Rock Critic play every night at Steppenwolf. And, you know, the ideas are resonating. Here's this guy in, in the late 70s, early 80s talking about the power of music to change the world by changing first ourselves. And, and I think these are very heavy ideas. And to say that it was all just style and flash is wrong. Mm. You know, so, Greg, obviously, I believe people should go see this play, How to Be a Rock Critic. Uh, they, they, hopefully, there'll be a film at some point down the future. Mm. You've got to read Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung and the other anthology, Bloodlines, Main Feasts, and Bad Taste, if you care about this notion of rock writing as literature that Jonathan Lethem introduced. But but let me turn it on you. I know you ha- have respect, but not my deep love for Lester Bangs. Who were the writers that, that formed your critical core?
1: Well, Lester was part of the mix, and I, I think all those early rock critic... Had an influence on me, um, and I think many other writers who followed. Anybody who says they didn't is lying to themselves. Uh, Grail Marcus had a big impact on me, particularly that book uh, *Mystery Train*. Yeah. Suddenly, I realized it wasn't just about writing about this concert or this album. You were writing about culture, about life, about politics, uh, all the things that could interest you could be contained in a piece of criticism. Because about it's all a in the music, music. correct? Yeah. And, and Grail just opened up the, that whole world with *Mystery Train*. There's three other writers that I, I really uh, think aren 't talked about enough, uh, Robert Palmer, who did a lot of writing mm-hmm. uh, for The New York Times but also other publications, uh, most people think oh, the singer Robert Palmer, no no, oh, no Robert no, no. Palmer, the critic who wrote a book called Deep Blues. Mm-hmm. Here was a guy coming at it from a sort of a technical background, but at the same time made it incredibly understandable uh, to a a person who may not have any music training at all and did it in a way that was very exciting. And I thought, wow, somebody can write about music in a way that makes me want to get up and find that record and play that record. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ellen Willis um, was an extremely important early voice in rock criticism. Uh, notably for not only for being a great writer, but for being a female in a largely male-dominated field. In the New Yorker. Uh, incredible work and a sensitivity in her writing. When she would write about the Velvet Underground, she made oh, yes. me understand the Velvet Underground best of all the critics I read about them. Uh, luck, my favorite enough, band of all time. Lucky
2: enough to go to NYU, uh, uh, Ellen was one of my professors. She was, she was a terrifically insightful writer.
1: And, uh, and Nelson George. Uh, I think mm. the fact that Nelson George was writing about soul... R&B early hip hop in a way uh that that could contend with any critic writing about rock. Rock seemed to be like that that was the holy grail, you know. We're yeah. writing about rock and soul and R&B were kind of not really dealt with in a in a in a serious way until somebody like Nelson George came along and said this stuff is as good as any of that, in fact better. And one of the reasons I'm such a fan of that style of music is because of
2: uh, Nelson George's writing. I couldn't agree more. But we want to hear from you at home. Besides me and Greg, of course, who are your favorite rock critics? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. And Greg how could we do a show on rock criticism without actually doing some ourselves making some time for some reviews Up next new music from Mavis Staples and Bjork That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX
0: I walk through this land. Take stake a uh, clean uh, with, uh, uh, with my sense with my Share thee
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and it's time to listen to some new music.
0: This life surrounds you, guns are loaded, this kind of tension, hard not to notice, right, right.
2: That is a little bit of a song called Little Bit, the first track on Mavis Staples' new album, If All I Was Was Black, the 16th solo studio album by Mavis. Uh, A legend, Greg. You wrote a book about her. I'll take you there. Born in Chicago, 1939. She's 78 now. Started out with the Staples Singers' her brother and sisters and her father pops uh marching in the streets of the south with Dr Martin Luther King uh facing the fire hoses the dogs and the batons fighting for civil rights. Solo career starts in 69, Stax Volt goes on to make records with Holland Dozier Holland and Prince and but I think the last 10 years has been key. She was signed in 2007 to Anti Epitaph, one of the most adventurous independent labels in America. Has made 5 albums now for them. Uh, uh, one with Ry Cooter, the others with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. Been on an almost unprecedented, outside of perhaps Leonard Cohen, late career high mm. in her 70s. Let's dive into the music. We'll come back. We'll give our opinions. Here's a track called Who Told You That by Mavis Staples from If All I Was Was Black on Sound Opinions.
0: When I <laughs> carry my
1: Who Told You That from Mavis Staples. The new album is If All I Was Was Black. In that song, she asked the question, am I alone? Am I the only one? You know, these lines about hold back, don't explode. We don't want to rock the boat. Uh, this whole notion of anyone who steps out of line will be crushed in the atmosphere that our country uh, is fostering right now uh, in regard to many topics, uh, race relations foremost among them. Uh, Mavis Staples is angry on this record in a way that I haven't heard her to typically being. No, um, I mean, she is the most gracious person in the world, she, uh, but she's ticked off. Her music was always about bringing people together, about unity, and, and it had been that way uh, even in the civil rights movement. In the, in, the, in the throes of that, they were still talking about bringing people together. Her father, Pop Staples, instilled that in her. But in the song We Go High, written by Jeff Tweedy, Uh, sung by Mavis Staples, uh, riffing on that line by Michelle Obama, When They Go Low, We Go High. She sings, I have a mind to bury them whole. Even though I want to think the best of them, and they are people just like me and you, uh, I I have a mind to bury them whole for what they're saying and how they're acting.
0: Well, I have a mind to bury them whole When they go low To tell you the truth Wait for the time when we are brothers, holding each
1: other, heaven on earth. Tweety asked her, you know, or Mavis, is this okay? Because he wrote that line. He knew he was feeling that way. He could sense Mavis was too. And she goes, oh yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> I'm there with you on that on that line. Uh, there, there's a rough-hewn Approach to uh, the the initial uh, demos for this record is basically Jeff and his son Spencer on drums, which is the way they recorded their previous record with Mavis. Um, that that rough-hewn tweedy guitar on, on on the on these songs that are the angriest is a really nice touch. It's mm-hmm. almost as if you know Sterling Morrison of the Velvet Underground stepped yeah. into the studio and did some uh, some guitar work on this record. It has that sort of garagey kind of feel. And Mavis feels right at home with that. Anything that's kind of sparse and gives her room to move, simple lines where she can sort of improvise and build around are her uh, bread and butter and have been since the early days when she was in the church. Uh, This is a great protest record and a time when we really need uh, powerful protest records. And if there's ever a woman was put on this planet to sing those kind of songs, it's Mavis Staples. It's a buy-it
2: record for me. It's an absolutely buy-it record, Greg. I saw a tweet this morning. As bad as every day can be of late we still live in a world that has Mavis Staples. Yeah. You know, and, and it's true. You you may, listeners, if you're following Sound Opinions this year, we did two long interviews with Mavis Staples, two, uh, pretty much, two entire shows. We think she is that important. She's an American treasure. She's inspirational. She gives voice to these feelings that, uh, that uh, I, you know, this album's as good as Kendrick Lamar's, which we talked about last week in, in, among the best in terms of being uh, uh, an angry record tapping into something in America today. I will further say that of the five anti records, they're all good, but this one I think is my favorite because of that. Uh, you know, Tweedy finally uh, is over like the fanboy worship, yeah, right. and he lets it get ripping and roaring, and, and he doesn't hold back. And Mavis's voice, if anything, is warmer and more relaxed uh, than it's ever been. It's an absolute buy-it record.
1: That is a track called Loss from the new Bjork album, Utopia. The Icelandic multimedia artist, I think that's the only way to describe her, Jim Bjork. Uh, She's not just a singer and songwriter. She's also an actress. She's had art exhibitions. Uh, She's a DJ, record producer. She's been on top of the worlds of electronic music, pop, experimental, classical, trip-hop, avant-garde. Over the last few decades, she's had 30 singles in the top 40 in charts around the world, sold over 20 million records, but is still regarded as one of those artists, despite the distinguished career, as kind of a, an independent artist, a cult act, an avant-garde artist, someone who has never bought into what the mainstream is selling and is consistently doing work uh, that is interesting and entrancing outside of that realm. Here's her latest record. It's called Utopia, and here's a track from it called The Gate on Sound Opinions.
2: That's a little bit of The Gate by Bjork from uh, solo album number nine, Utopia. Greg, I am Bjorked out. I'm done with Bjork. I've always (laughs) loved Bjork. I really have. No, I know. I know. I always have. Uh, She's been great. But 72 minutes. This is the longest uh, solo album she's ever given us. Of what is being called by fans, her flute record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say instead it's a collection often of birds that seem to be farting <laughs> when they aren't chirping. Man, I, I I got no joy from this record, and I kept listening. Uh, sort of masochistically, to try to figure out where the Bjork in in this record was. Look, I don't want to live in the past, Uh, Post and Homogenic and Vespertine. I love those records. I love Bjork. But this record is a collection of dirges. Mid-tempo would be kind. There are almost no tempo, no melody. Bjork poses the central question midway through am i in love with love okay that's the sort of question she's always asked but she doesn't give us any reason to love the music it's 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 tuneless it's wandering it's it's uh, i don't know if she's going for opera Or some sort of naturalistic minimalism. I I just don't know. It gave me zero joy. And that's the first time ever in listening to Bjork from the beginning where I felt that way. i got to say, this is a trash at record. You know, she is cavorting with the uh, digital fairies over the fjords (laughs) of Iceland. And I just don't want to dance with her this
1: time. You know, she... She is uh, out there to confuse sometimes, I think. and uh, But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I always find myself returning to music that I can't pin down. The best I can figure is what she's doing here. She's combining some heavy avant-garde classical influences. I mean, those flutes are the telltale sign. It's almost like a chamber pop record. And then she's working with this Venezuelan-UK electronic artist named Arca. He's a really, really interesting artist. And I think when you think about where artists like FKA Twigs or Solange are coming from mm-hmm. on their recent records, they're taking a lot of cues from what Bjork's been doing over the last five or six yeah, years. Yeah, but they're writing songs, and, and Bjork has lost the plot. Well, and you know, and that's the thing. People are saying, why can't she make Post again? Why can't she make records like she did in the 90s, which were kind of that combination of avant-garde experimental with a pop melodic sensibility about them? I agree with that. That that was a lot more accessible uh, version of Bjork. I think she's listening to what the mainstream has, has to offer right now. She's not interested in any of it. When I started to understand what this record was about, I started thinking about, okay, what, what do the birds mean? And then I'm thinking about Icelandic wilderness. What does the Icelandic wilderness sound like? So I'm starting to call up YouTube videos. This is Greg Codd researching this record. Wilderness uh, recordings of Iceland. And you're talking about mountains,
2: hot springs, lots yeah, of yeah, fog, yeah, yeah. birds calling. Yeah. It's this is what this is. This you're is a walk saying through you had the any wilderness. Fun doing you know, this, or had any emotional reaction? I actually to it. thought it was quite. You she, know, you did a term paper on the Bjork record. You didn't enjoy listening to I, it. I did
1: actually. I interviewed her once a, a few times in the '90s, well, actually. So I. And she talked about using ambiance, the environment that she was in, as really the musical color of whatever record she was working on at that time. If she happened to be working in a city and there were car horns beeping and there was all these conflicting noises, she would incorporate that into her own recordings, doing like field recordings as research, and maybe then using some of those sounds on her records. But you used to be able to sing along to one. You know, it doesn't bother me. I I, I put this thing on on headphones and I'm lost in that world now. The last record was a wrenching record. It was a breakup record. Volna Cara was, was a wrenching record.
2: It was her heartbreak this record. Is a I, record. I gave it to buy it.
1: This is a record about coming out of that and, and finding new possibilities. And one of the new possibilities is, let's make music that hasn't been made yet. Let's explore the unknown. I, like you, did not like this record when I first heard it. I go, what is this? The more I listen to it, the more I realize
2: she's a weirdo, and I don't love her. She's she's just a—I I think right, she's made a terrific right. record. Utopia is a buy-it record for me. A buy-it from Greg, a trash-it from me. What do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, we have our very own Chris Kringle paying us an in-studio visit. Andy Surzan is going to share some of his most obscure Christmas music once again with us. Sound
2: Opinions was produced, as always, by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chong, Alex Claiborne, and Iana Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So yeah. now it's time to hear what you have to say. You used to call me on my cell phone Late night when you need
4: my love And I know when
0: the blink like New messages
4: Hi, my name is Casey
5: from Roselle, Illinois. My comment is regarding the basics episode you had on and it was compelling for me to listen to from the start and by the end of it I uh, couldn't get to a place quick enough to order the Ibanez version of a bass 6 and am eagerly awaiting the arrival of that So look what you've done another guitar in my collection or bass I should
4: say or whatever it is. Thank you. Hey Jim and Greg, it's Chris calling from New York City Just listened to your best albums of the 2017 episode I thought it was great I think it's a shame though that the episode came out On the 1st of December When we still have a month left to go And uh, I also wanted uh, to uh, Highlight Miguel's new album uh, War and Leisure Are the
0: trees I enough baby Leave it so high Your feet won't touch the ground Would you look at?
4: and i've been pretty sort of cool on miguel's previous work but this album i've been listening to and you can totally hear the prince influence and you can hear the frank ocean malay ho like james blake sort of reverby guitar influence uh on this new Miguel record and I think it really really works and uh, Miguel tackling a lot of sensitive issues um, and serious issues in a way that doesn't feel like you're being beat over the head Uh, it's very catchy it's very listenable Uh, I think it's it's a great record I I would say it's one of my favorites of the year so anyways I love what you guys are doing thanks so much happy holidays and uh, talk to you later Hey, folks, Matt in Chicago over in uh, Wrigleyville. My pick for album of the year is From a Room, volume one by Chris Stapleton. This man just sounds like he's having fun. That's the great thing about music. When you hear someone who is hard rocking, poignant, up to no good living, second one to no, that is just pure country music. Happiness with a little bit of sadness because country. Anyway, you guys are doing great. Bye bye. Hi, This is Mark from Bowie And I just listened to your show Of the top albums Of the year Your picks And an interesting show For an old hippie Progressive This year has been an absolute nightmare And Roger Waters' album Is this the life you really want? Musically Lyrically Etc. Really speaks to me If I had
5: I would have rearranged the veins in the face to make them more resistant to alcohol and
4: less prone to aging. In his opening song, some essential things we question, from addiction to violence, I would eliminate all the weapons that can kill, the apathy of the population not getting involved in political issues. The whole album really gets to where my heart and soul is right now. No more messages.
1: To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.